Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, please. Romans 16. If you're using a few Bible, page 1139, take you to Romans chapter 16. Boy, we're getting really close now. Getting really close. The horse can smell the barn. Yeah, Lord willing, we'll finish this next week. But this morning, we're going to be looking just at verses 17 through 20. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Let me just read the text for us as we get started together. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Earlier this week, I was meeting over in the Fountain Cafe in the morning with some guys to have a cup of coffee and just to talk about the Scriptures as I am wont to do. And the discussion that morning revolved around the topic of demons. I have no idea how we got from the book of Proverbs to the discussion of demons But we did. We got there very quickly, as a matter of fact. And as we were having that discussion, the question came up. They said, Pastor, do you think think there is demonic activity going on today in our culture? And I said, absolutely. In fact, I think we would be surprised at the level and intensity of the demonic activity that is going on in our culture today. But... I said to them, I don't think it manifests itself probably in the way that you would expect that it would. You know, biblically, Satan's great strategy is to confuse or contradict the Word of God. To undermine the confidence of people in the very words of their Creator. That is his main approach. And so false teachers who have historically plagued the people of God, are very much in play today, virtually anywhere you look. This reality, by the way, that Satan's main strategy is to contradict or to confuse the Word of God is evidently available to us. It it goes as far back as Genesis. takes us right back into the very first confrontation between Satan and humanity. Back in Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember in in verse 1, Satan says to Eve, he says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Is that what God really said to you, Eve, that, that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So immediately he begins to sow the seeds of doubt in her mind with regard to the word of God. A few verses later, he flat out contradicts the very word of God. He says, you shall not die if you take and you eat. We see this strategy, by the way, all through the pages of the scriptures. 
I was thinking about this. When you get to the gospel accounts, there's like an explosion of demonic activity according to the biblical record. It's at an unprecedented level in terms of what the scriptures record for us. And the reason for that is, is that the very word of God himself, the living word, was now walking among mankind. And, and so Satan was pulling out all the stops to confuse and to contradict the living word of God. We see it in Luke chapter 4, verse 33 and following. Just a little vignette. It says, there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. The last thing the Lord wanted was a walking advertisement from the demonic realm as to who he was and what his ministry was all about. That would create confusion. That would create contradiction. Of the very message that he came to preach. Beyond that, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, writing to the church at Corinth. He says, I am afraid lest the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul says, I'm worried about you that you will be carried away in a satanic lie. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. His schemes to confuse, to contradict the very word of God. 2 Peter chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1, Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. This is Satan's grand and master strategy. It is to confuse, it is to contradict the Word of God, to sow doubt in the minds of people, and thus draw them away from the truth. But here we are in Romans 16. The very close of the letter, Paul is is winding this letter down, which, by the way, reminds me a little bit of the Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm saying? There's like one ending after another. And that's kind of the final chapter here in the book of of, of, uh, Romans. There are a number of endings to this book, it seems. Paul just can't let it go. But it's really strange, at at least at first glance, when you think about this. Just look back at the text with me. We noticed last week in verse 16, he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It would be a great way to end. And then you look down to verse 21, and it says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen, and on some more greetings. So it's kind of odd. At least at first glance, it's odd. That sandwiched between these two greetings, we find this really strong section with regard to false teachers, with regard to satanic strategies to destroy the church, the people of God. Why? 
Why does Paul do that? Why does he insert this warning about false teachers right into the middle of his closing? It almost seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? Well, the answer is we don't know exactly why he did it. The Apostle Paul didn't reveal that to us, so we can, we can only speculate a little, and I'll do that for you. I'll speculate a little bit with you. I mean, perhaps he did it because he wants it to stand out. Maybe it's part of his strategy all along in terms of, of writing this letter to the church at Rome, this, this magnum opus that lays out Paul's gospel, as he, he says here in verse 25. And so when you get to something near the end and you insert it there, it kind of it, it resides in people's memories. It's sort of the last things they hear. And so maybe that's why he does that. Maybe he inserts it here because he wants them to, to remember this, to, to catch this, not to miss it, make it stand out. After all, a, a warning about false teaching is a, is a clear demonstration of one's love and concern for other people. And Paul says, I, I have love for you. I have concern for you here in Rome. And, and so maybe that's why he does it, just to make it stick out in their minds. Beyond that, perhaps just his statement at the end of verse 16, where he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Maybe, maybe just thinking about all the other churches and the problems that all the other churches face just brings this to his forefront in his thinking. And so he inserts it here to remind them. Could be that. Whatever the case, it appears that at this point, Paul stops dictating the letter and actually picks up his pen and begins to write in his own hand. And that was not uncommon for him. You know, there, were, there needed to be a way to have a little bit of authenticity to his letter. And so commonly at the end of his letter, he would write a little bit in his own penmanship. I have no idea what the penmanship of the apostle Paul looked like. But he would write in his own hand so that it would give it a bit of authenticity at the end. And, and so that seems perhaps what he's doing here is he picks up his pen and he, he pens this warning. This warning about false teaching. Whatever the reason he does it, he gives us in this dense little passage of Scripture a twofold strategy for dealing with false teachers. And since the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Spirit of God, thought it necessary to include that a church at Rome, under the power of the Spirit of God, it is necessary for us to hear it today. A twofold strategy. I've given it to you in the back of your bulletin. It's a very simple strategy. Identify and isolate. Twofold strategy for dealing with satanic false teachers. Identify and isolate. Identify and isolate. We have to first identify them. We have to identify them. As agents of Satan, false teachers, as I said, have been plaguing the people of God from the beginning. Moses includes in Deuteronomy instructions for the people of God there as to how they might ferret these false teachers, these false prophets out. He provides a twofold test back in Deuteronomy Verse chapter 13, he gives what I call the doctrine test in Deuteronomy 13. And, and what he says is that even if the miraculous signs that a prophet does come true, unless his teaching, his doctrine leads you to Yahweh to worship your God, you are to ignore him. He is a false prophet. So there is the doctrine test. 
And then in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, he gives what I call the inerrancy test. So there's the doctrine test in chapter 13. There's the inerrancy test in chapter 18. And it's simply this, that if a prophet makes a prophecy and it does not come true, that man is a false prophet. Simple as that. He is a false prophet. His words must come absolutely true because he claims to speak on behalf of the living God whose plan cannot be thwarted. So Moses gives a doctrine test. He gives an inerrancy test. Paul provides a twofold test for us here, and it is the identify and isolate, the identify and isolate strategy. Now, it's probably not likely that the false teachers are already in Rome. It's probably not likely that they're there and attacking the church yet. And the reason I say that is, is the, Paul only gives general directions here about how to deal with them. He doesn't really give us any specifics. He doesn't call out the heresy for us. In other New Testament letters where the, where the false teachers are already infecting the church, Paul identifies just exactly what the heresy is and, and how it's to be combated. But here he, he only speaks in general terms. He doesn't refute the heresy. So I think that it's probably that they're not yet there, but Paul is concerned they're coming. They're on their way. And so he's giving them this, this warning. It begins in verse 17, where he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Keep your eye on them. Skopeo is the, is the Greek verb, and we get the English word scope, which you find in telescope or microscope. And the idea is to examine, to look carefully, not to just in a passing gaze or glance, but to really pay attention, really focus. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Don't miss it. Scrutinize, look around, pay attention. They're coming. False teachers, according to the New Testament, come from both inside the church and outside. They come from the inside and they come from the outside. We can see it simply if you'll go back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, page 1114. You can see Paul's prophecy to the elders at Ephesus about the danger of false teachers arising from inside of the flock. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. Paul says there, and he's, he's giving kind of his last words of instructions to the, to the elders at Ephesus. He's soon to leave them. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, Paul says, look at it. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. He says there are savage wolves coming to tear the flock, and they will even rise from inside of the body itself to tear it apart. So the danger comes from the inside. The danger also can come to us from the outside and Paul makes that rather clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You'll turn over there, 1 Timothy 5, the end of the chapter, page 1189. 
Paul is speaking to Timothy here. Interestingly, Timothy is, is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes to him there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And he, he gives him some really important advice. Beginning in verse 22. He says, Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Skip over verse 23. It's, a, it's an insert. It's a, just a parenthetical thought. He continues, verse 24, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What Paul says here is, Don't move too quickly, Timothy, elevating someone into a role of authority in the church. Don't be too quick to put your hands on them and to set them apart as a teacher among the people of God, to, to set them apart as an elder. And the reason you're not to do this, Timothy, is because for some men, their, their sins are kind of, they're back behind them and they drag them along. And it, it takes a little while for their character to be manifest, for their sins to show up. Some people, it precedes them and you don't have to worry so much about them. You'll know when they get here. But there are others where it, it takes a while for the baggage train to catch up to them. And so don't move too quickly here, Timothy. Check them out. Get to know them. Make sure of their character before you elevate them into a position of leadership among the people of God. Because if you do this unwisely and you end up elevating a false teacher, he will tear the flock in half. He's deadly. So Paul says a... They come from inside and they come from outside the congregation. Now, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, back to Romans 16, there were essentially only two ways that false teachers and false teaching could infiltrate a church. It could be in person. That is, the false teacher could, could show up someday and, and ingratiate themselves into the fellowship and begin to sow their seeds of destruction. So they could come in person. That's one way. Or the other way, it could be by letter. 2 Thessalonians 2.2. We won't turn there. You can just mark it down. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul warns the church at Thessalonica not to pay attention to a letter as if it's from us. So false teachers in that day would write letters and send it to the church. And they would, these letters with their false doctrines would tear the flock of God. Those were simple times. We live in complicated times. We live in times of mass communication. We live in times where everybody's connected to everybody else. And so the, the seeds of damnable heresies can move rapidly throughout the church. I mean, today it's the radio, right? You can listen to the radio and hear all kinds of purportedly Christian teaching coming pouring in. People watch television and they turn on television channels and they, and they listen to one Proposed Bible teacher after another. It comes over the Internet. You can go online to the Internet. You can go to YouTube. You can listen and watch all kinds of things and all kinds of people. There's just a, an overwhelming amount of information. We add to that Christian bookstores. You walk into Christian bookstores, some of whom are very undiscerning. And on their shelves, you'll find out-and-out -out heresies. And so all of these things attack the people of God and the local church. You know, a little over a generation ago, the pastor was the primary Bible teacher in a church. 
That's how people learned their Bible. They came, they, they listened to the preaching, and they read their scriptures at home, and they studied them, and, and they grew in their understanding of the Word of God. But it's not that way anymore. I'm but one voice among many. Many, many of you are getting your spiritual input from all kinds of sources that I have no idea where it's coming from. The elders here, we have no idea what kind of spiritual input is coming into your life and where it's coming from. It's just the reality of the matter of the day in which we live. It comes to us from every direction and it can easily drown out the truth in a cacophony of conflicting messages. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that it's good for us to be out there on YouTube, to put the truth out there into the World Wide Web. At least some people are speaking truth into that mess. Well, Paul wants the believers here to be able to identify false teachers. And so he gives four general tests for us in the text. Four general tests that enable us to figure out who's a false teacher and who isn't. Now, these, these tests, they have to be applied carefully, carefully and diligently. This is not a witch hunt. This is not a means to squash honest inquiry or differences of opinion. That's not the point. We're to examine carefully. We're to look around. We're to be diligent. But we need to ferret out these people who are a menace to the health of the body. And Paul gives us Four ways to do it. The first of them, beginning at the first part of verse 17, is that false teachers are divisive individuals. They are divisive individuals. I urge you, brethren, again, verse 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Dissensions and hindrances. We could translate it easily, divisions and stumbling blocks. Those things that cause people's faith to falter. Scandalon is the word translated here, hindrances, occasions for stumbling, things that lead to spiritual ruin, even to eternal damnation, if you were to trace the word in the New Testament. These are serious matters. False teachers divide the people of God away from their leadership. And they divide the people of God away from one another. They split up the body. They sever off pieces. They undermine the credibility of the leadership of the church. And they seek to establish themselves in those roles. And in the process, they cause divisions and stumbling blocks. Because they teach, again, verse 17, look at it. They teach contrary to the apostolic message that is the gospel. Contrary to the teaching, verse 17, which you have learned. They contradict the gospel. They contradict the New Testament. They contradict the, the, the doctrine of the apostles that they have handed down to us. And they divide people away from the leadership of the church. James Montgomery Boyce, longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now with the Lord, he writes the following, and it's really insightful. So listen as I read. He writes, and I quote, Often these people, speaking of these false teachers, often these people, these are people who show up in a congregation suddenly, usually from another church where they have also caused trouble, though they give no indication of that when they come. They are knowledgeable. 
they usually have considerable abilities. They are leaders in the sense that they have enthusiasm and get people to follow easily. Generally, they are used to teaching and they want to fill this role in their new church. Unfortunately, although the Bible warns us to make full proof of those who want to be teachers, people like this are usually welcomed and quickly put to work because most churches need able people who actually serve, close the quote. Wow, is that insightful? How many times does a church say, we need teachers, we need people to help? And the basic requirement is, can you fog a mirror? If you can fog a mirror, we'll take you. Unknowingly, running the risk of elevating into a position of authority someone who is an agent of Satan, who would seek to destroy the flock of God. These are serious things. This, by the way, you want to pray for Summit Bible Church? This is the place you can pray for that new church plant. They are desperate for people. And the temptation for them will be as people begin to arrive and some of whom will be mightily gifted or at least appear to be so is that they will quickly move them into positions of leadership and they'll move up the ranks rapidly and the danger is that unknowingly the enemy can be brought right into the camp. Very dangerous. Pray for Summit Bible Church. False teachers are divisive. That's the first test. They are divisive. Beyond that, they are sensual. They are sensual. Look again, verse 18. Paul says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, literally belly. They are a slave of their belly. You can see the same kind of language over in Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes there, page 1177, if you want to turn over there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul's writing there about false teachers. He says, brethren, Philippians 3, 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Pay attention. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, same word, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. False teachers are men and women of great appetite, great physical appetite. I don't mean that they consume large quantities of food, although I suppose that's possible. But that's not the distinguishing mark. When Paul says their their God is their belly, or here it says they are a slave of their belly, the idea is that they are a slave of their bodily appetites. They are driven by earthly things. It is their lust. It is their their passion for fame or for power or for money or luxury or even sexual immorality that shows itself to reveal them to be sensual people, earth people, devoid of the Spirit. These kind of people, they they may talk about the Lord, but they don't serve him, Paul says. They talk about him, but they don't serve him. Instead, they serve their own bellies. They serve their own bellies. Sensual, divisive. Third, they are persuasive. They are persuasive. 
Again, verse 18. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Smooth and flattering speech. They use Bible language, but they don't mean the same thing the Bible means with the language. They speak in Christian jargon, but they don't mean Christian concepts with it. They're they're smooth, they're flattering, Paul says. They perform what I call exegetical sleight of hand. That is, they twist the text to make it say what they want it to say to support their damnable heresies. If you want illustrations of this, by the way, you can turn on the television and you can watch them. You can, you can predict, if you get, spend a little time watching this, you can predict the moment when the sleight of hand will happen. You know, a magician, right? They, they're holding their hand out here and they're doing something. They're, they're focusing your eyes out here when they're really back here doing something else, right? That's how that sleight of hand stuff works. That's exactly what they do. You can, you can predict the moment when they're going to twist the text and begin to make it say things it doesn't say. And frequently they, they graze in the narrative portions of the Old Testament. And they turn those promises to Israel into promises of prosperity by which they fleece the unsuspecting people of God. They are persuasive people. They, they manipulate the word of God. And why not? Well, that's what Satan does. You remember his confrontation with Jesus? Matthew chapter 4, he came to him with the word of God, seeking to undermine Jesus' confidence in his own messianic ministry. And Satan twisted the word of God, and, and Jesus rebuked him and said, Be gone, Satan! Remember, not too, too long ago, when I had some folks come and knock at my door. They wanted to speak to me about Spiritual things, they said. I knew who they were. So I said to them, just answer me a question. Who is Jesus Christ? And they said, well, he is the son of God. I said, liar! You do not believe that. Stop twisting words. And then I looked at the younger one and I said, I call on you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your damnable heresy right now in this place. By that time, they They are backing up off the front porch. I thought they were going to fall. I said, be gone. Be gone. Smooth and flattering speech. They probably thought, man, did I run into a grumpy old man? (laughs) They're out there to steal your soul, beloved. They are out there to kill you. They want to kill you. And they do it by persuasive, flattering words. Fourth, they are deceiving. They are deceiving. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Do you see it? Their purpose is to deceive. That's their intention. They've been trained in these things. They're good at it. They come to deceive you. They, they come to confuse you. Throughout Paul's ministry, he was constantly harassed by false teachers. Constantly following him around. 
He would, he would go to a certain location of the ancient world and, and he would begin a new work and, and plant a church and, and believers would begin to spring up and they would be baptized and he would begin to disciple them. And, and then he would move on. And as soon as he moved out of town, right in behind him came the emissaries of Satan, the false teachers. And they came to undermine his work, undermine the credibility in the gospel. And they weren't, they weren't amateurs. They were good at it. They were good at it. Paul writes about these people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and following. Listen. Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his sermon of his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Paul says they masquerade as. As teachers of light, as people of righteousness. False apostles deceiving the unsuspecting. You know, it was the Middle Ages where they began to portray Satan with the horns and the tail, right? And the pitchfork, paint him red. And they did that to mock him. It was designed to mock him. Satan, Paul says, comes to us like an angel of light. Like he's one of us. And he's welcomed in. And all things appear well at first. He's deadly. He'll kill you. He'll seduce you. He'll deceive you. He'll destroy your faith. These men are dangerous. I should say men and women, they're dangerous. They need to be identified. It's interesting here. Paul seems to indicate that these false teachers have kind of a special ability it's almost like a sixth sense, a, a radar or something. They can, they can discern who are the gullible. Who are the unsuspecting, Paul says, the end of verse 18. The innocent, if you will. That is, people who are not well-schooled in Christian theology. They don't really know their Bible all that well. Probably because they haven't spent very much time studying it, truth be told. Certain people are just kind of open to the notion that everyone's a Christian. I hear people say to me, uh, I went to the doctor. Yeah, he's a Christian. I went to the dentist. Yeah, he's a Christian. I went to the car mechanic. He's a Christian. I went to the real estate agent. He's a Christian. I don't know how everyone bumps into so many Christians, and I never do. I worked in banking a very long time, and there were only two people who told me they were Christians, and they both embezzled from me. Beloved, when I look around at society, I don't see Christians everywhere. I see a lot of people claim to be Christians, but by their deeds, they deny him. We shouldn't be so gullible. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just assume just because somebody says they're a Christian, says they love Jesus, that that makes them a brother in Christ. No, it does not. They're deceptive. Smooth and flattering words. They seek to steal you away. 
We shouldn't take every claim at face value. We need to, we need to probe it. We need to examine it. It's one of the reasons the church needs to have elders. It's the elders of the church who, who can, can ferret some of this stuff out and protect the body. But there's a sense in which all of us need to be workmen who are approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, able to discern truth from error. Your soul depends on it. Depends on it. To the best of my knowledge, I have only met one person in my life who I am convinced was demon-possessed. I think I did meet a demon-possessed man once. It was in 1983, a very long time ago. It was in a small Southern Baptist church in Massachusetts. Little teeny church, about 50 or 60 people. I was only had been a believer a few years myself and was anything but mature in the Lord. But but I was in leadership of this church. That gives you an idea. of The level of maturity of the body it was weak. One day, this older gentleman showed up. Really distinguished looking man, silver hair, all perfectly arranged, you know. And he had this he had this Bible that was so well worn. That was the first thing I noticed about him, how well worn his Bible was. And then he, he opened it, and he, and he would begin to teach. And his Bible was like all marked up. There was just cross-references written in everywhere, words underlined, highlighting, all this stuff. And it was like every page of the Bible. I was, I was just amazed. I, I mean, this guy obviously knew the Bible. And he began to teach. And, and when he taught, all of a sudden, the things that the pastor taught, they, they seemed kind of dull and boring. This guy, he obviously he knew more than the pastor. And so he would begin to teach. And, and pretty soon, the younger men of the church, they would, they would be spending more and more time with him and less and less time with the pastor. He just seemed like he had been sent from God. And then I got a phone call at home one night. The pastor called me up. He said, David, can you come over to the office tomorrow night at 7 o'clock? He said, I, I need you to be there for me. And I said, well, why do I need to be there? He said, I, I want you there. And he had asked another young man. I mean, I was just in my 20s. He said, I, I want you two guys to be there with me because I, I'm having a meeting with this person. I'm going to ask him to leave the church. I thought, whoa. Okay, <laughs> I'll go. So I remember Caroline praying, and, and I went to this meeting. And this guy walked into the meeting, and he was all smiles, you know, and grins. He walks in, he sees we were there ahead of him, and so he sees us sitting there, and he sees the pastor, and his countenance changes. And the pastor said, I've done some checking on you. He said, what do you mean? He said, I've called around, and I know what's going on. He said, I've, I've talked to other churches where you've been. He said, I, I know about that woman. Wow. The guy's eyes became black as coal and filled with anger and hatred. I have never seen such a transformation come across a human face. I thought at the time I was looking into the face of Satan himself. It was so unnerving. 
The pastor said, there's nothing to discuss. You leave and you leave now. The man started to put up a protest and he said, now. The guy slammed his Bible shut and turned around and he walked out the door and we never saw him again. I thought, oh, whew. Man, I had never seen such a confrontation. I praise God for that little country pastor in that little church. He didn't have a seminary degree. He didn't didn't have all of the bells and whistles. And yes, he was not the best Bible teacher you've ever heard. But he was a man of God who loved the people of God. and, And he was able to ferret out a false teacher in our midst. He drove him from the flock. We need to identify them. That's Paul's first strategy. We must identify them. Secondly, we must isolate them. We must isolate them. Back to verse 17, the end of the verse. Paul says, turn away from them. A very, very simple command. His instruction to the believers in the church at Rome, very simple. Shun them, do not kiss them. Coming off of verse 16. Shun them, do not kiss them. They're like a computer virus. They must be identified and they must be isolated or they will cause great damage to the body. Beloved, there is only one apostolic instruction when it comes to dealing with those who are a danger to the body of Christ. And it is a very simple instruction. We do not sit down with them and discuss anything. We drive them off like a wolf. We drive them off. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Elders must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things which they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Paul says, tell them to shut up and get rid of them. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Factious man. Heretikos in the Greek. Heretikos. We get the English word heretic. Heretic. Reject a heretic, it says, after a first and second warning. Beloved, heretics covered the opportunity for friendly discussion. That's exactly what they want. They want to come in. They want to, they want to talk about things. Let's just, let's just reason together. That's their approach. That's their strategy. 
John says, 1 John chapter 1, or 2 John rather, chapter 1 verse 10. He says, do not let them into the house. Don't even invite them in the doors. Don't greet them. Don't give them a good, you know, wishes for a good day. Tell them to get off your porch and get going. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm kind of weary. Weary, that's the word. I am weary too, but I am wary. I am wary of people who come and they want to discuss our doctrinal statement. That's usually how they approach it. They want to discuss the doctrinal statement of Foothill Bible Church. Pastor, can I make an appointment with you so we can discuss your doctrinal statement? No. No. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, I would be happy to answer it. Our doctrinal statement is not open to discussion. It is not available for negotiation. No. In fact, you know, I saw on a website here just a few weeks ago. I really liked it. The first church I've ever seen that does this. They put it right on their website after their doctrinal statement. It says, this doctrinal statement is not subject to discussion. I thought, whoa. (laughs) When somebody comes in with that approach, the hair on the back of my neck goes up. And I think, what's going on here? Or sometimes there are there are the young theologians who show up here at church. They got their head full of something they've stuffed it with. And they, they want to challenge me. It's kind of like a, a gunslinger rolls into town and they want to see if the sheriff, how fast he is. You know, kind of take him. They want to call me out. So I just get the double barrel shotgun down off of the gun rack. <laughs> I load it with buckshot. I tell him to get out of Dodge. I'm not that fast. I'm just flat out going to tell you, I'm not that fast. I don't think well on my feet. Sure, somebody can come in and trip us up, can trip me up. So what? If that's someone's attitude. They're not welcome. I'll tell you straight up, they are not welcome here if that's their approach. And the reason they're not welcome is because they're a danger to the body. They are a danger to the body. They may not be a false teacher, but that level of arrogance and pride is a danger to the body. It'll begin to undermine leadership and draw away disciples after itself. Paul goes on, verse 19. He says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. This is a really hard verse. I'm going to have to tell you that. It is is syntactically difficult. What I mean by that is it begins with four. And normally in in the text, when it begins with four, it's giving a reason for something. But it's, it's really hard to figure out the connection that lies between verse 19 and what's gone on before. I'm just telling you that. It's difficult. Here's a possibility. I'll just give it to you as a possibility. One of you who are smarter than me, you can come tell me afterwards exactly how it relates. But here's my idea of how it relates. I think the connectivity here flows out of the end of verse 18 when he talks about the unsuspecting, the naive. 
And then in verse 19, he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Beyond that, he, he says in verse 19, you have a, you have a reputation that is, that is well known about your obedience. There's the kind of people where if you hear the word of God, you do it. You don't argue about it, you just do it. And that's a commendable trait, by the way, a very commendable trait. But I, I think the connection here is, is that Paul is concerned because of their universal reputation for obedience that with that can come a potential for being led astray. You know, people who are curmudgeons, they don't get led astray very often. Did you know that? They just kind of dig their heels in on everything. I remember one of our children who will remain unnamed. But if you give me $10 afterwards, I'll tell you who it is. Growing up, had a pretty good stubborn streak. And I remember Carol and I talking about this child growing up and, and saying, a little bit of a stubborn streak here. No, a lot of a stubborn streak. But thinking to ourselves and actually voicing to ourselves, you know what? When the Lord gets a hold of this person, see, I protected her. I mean, <laughs> uh, gets, a, gets a hold of this person <laughs> and turns that stubborn streak for him She'll be a mighty warrior for God. She won't be easily moved off the truth. She's not a silly girl. You know, obedience is good. But not at the expense of discernment. Again, listen to the words of the Apostle John. First, John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits to see whether they be of God. Don't take things at face value. Don't assume everyone's as nice as you are. That everyone says what they mean and means what they say like you do. It's just not true. I want you to be wise in what is good, Paul says, experienced in what's good. But I want you to be inexperienced. I want you to be innocent in what is evil. Verse 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have an allusion here back to Genesis 3.15. Where God there says to Eve that her seed will crush the serpent's head. And I think what Paul is doing by bringing this in, he's, he's doing two things. One, he's, he's reminding them and us of the reality that behind false teachers lies Satan himself. This is spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. But he also is reminding them that that, that spiritual warfare will not last forever. And that indeed, Satan will be crushed. Messiah will triumph. And Messiah's people will participate in that great triumph. I think that's the idea. Satan will be crushed. The God of peace will do it. He will crush him. And he will crush him under your feet. Hang on. Fight the good fight. It's a a battle that makes us tired. It's like constant vigilance. We're like a sentry walking guard duty. We can never sit down on the job. We can never just take a little nap. 
remember years ago I was coming back from visiting Carol. This was before we were married. She lived a long way from where I did, and I always stayed later than I should have. So I was driving back, and I was so tired, just dog-tired. And I thought I would just close one eye (laughs) while I was driving. I would just rest one because I was so tired. So I thought I'd be all right. I'll I'll just close my right eye, and I'll keep my left eye open. Yeah, exactly, at highway speed. The next thing I knew, my uh, wheels were, were hitting the, um, you know, the things that they have on the side of the road to let you know that you're about to go off the road. Yeah. Boom! I woke up. I was wide awake. <laughs> I was so tired. Just wanted a break. Just wanted to relax. Just wanted to rest for a moment. And, and that's the way we feel. I know. I feel like, oh, it's a constant. Pressure, constant attack. Can't we just rest? Can't we just close one eye? No. No, we must be constantly vigilant. But hang on. Hang on. Look at it again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's the eminence of the return of Jesus Christ right there in that verse for you. Christ can come at any moment. He stands at the door. Paul says, hang on. Hang on and you will be victorious. Don't give up. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, Paul says, verse 20. And may he be with us. For our enemy, the devil, is like a prowling lion. Seeking whom he may destroy. We need the grace of God to hang on tough. May he grant it to us in abundance. Let's pray. Our Father, we we did not go looking for this message this morning. It came looking for us. Sandwiched as it is between the sets of greetings at the end of the letter to the church at Rome. Jarring in that regard, O Lord, it kind of stands out. O Lord, as the believers of the first century needed this message, we need it too. We live in a day, our Father, of a great abundance of false teaching. We live in a day, our Father, when although the Scriptures are plenteous, your church is weak and undiscerning. Hundreds of thousands, yea, Lord, probably millions, are sucked up by false teachers who seek to destroy Oh, Lord, may you protect Foothill Bible Church. Our Father, may you enable us not to have a fortress mentality, that is to wall off others, but to have our arms open wide in Christian love and hospitality, and yet at the same time, oh Lord, 
to be wise and scrutinize, to be aware of, of who is teaching the Word of God and what they're saying about it. Oh, Lord, may you enable us as a body to, to grow in our understanding and love for the Scriptures, that individually we can sift out the chaff, dispose of it. Lord, as we go into 2011, seeking to continue to advance the gospel both here locally and beyond. As Summit Bible Church seeks to drive its taproot deep and to begin to make a real effect upon the community of North Fontana. Oh Lord, we are not so naive to think that the enemy is idle, but that he is scheming even now. That he is planning his attack that the pressures and the attacks will come. That the opportunities for one to get in and tear the flock, either here or there, are great. But Lord, may you protect us. May you draw us together and, oh Lord, may you enable us to preserve the unity of your church. That the reputation of Jesus Christ may not be bestowed. O oh Lord, that, that His name could be made known. We pray in the name of that matchless Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.